Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. I think since Stephen prayed for the Lentons this morning, I'd like to begin by telling you a little bit about the Lentons. Jason has worked with... Uh, with uh, I can never remember his name, Joel, Joel and Judy Linton. And I like, you know how often we exhort men to lead and women to submit to their husbands in this church. It's a never-ending theme, right? And Judy and Joel are missionaries to Taiwan now. And my recollection of Judy the first time when Mary Lee and I first moved here in 1992 was that she was working with a group of college students up on the hill doing literacy work, teaching kids to read and stuff. And so we had this meeting in my office where they wanted to talk to me about the work and ways that the church could support them, and I was the new senior pastor. And so they came in, and there was a a young, long-haired hippie freak who was the man, and there was Judy. And they were the co-leaders of this group. And what I remember is that Judy did all the talking and all the leading throughout the meeting. And then at the end of the meeting, I said to Judy, Judy, um, if you're with a man, sometimes you should let the man speak. Now listen, Judy's wonderful. This is not me uh, dissing Judy. But it is hard work to be men and women instead of just persons today. You know what I'm saying? And so Judy ended up graduating from IU, and then she went out and uh, took a graduate degree at Columbia in New York City, met Joel, they married, now they're missionaries of the PCA, planning churches uh, in Taiwan, and Jason hopes in a little bit to go and to serve with them. And... Judy, one of the reasons Judy is so strong is when she was a little girl, she was knifed by the opposition leaders in Taiwan. So if you go back and you read her history, you find out that she was at home with her, I think, two sisters, I may get the numbers wrong, and her grandmother, and Jason, where are you? How how many sisters? And were both of them killed? And wasn't her grandmother killed also? Yeah. And so the opposition leaders came in, her father was a political leader, and they killed her two sisters and her grandmother, and they tried to kill Judy, but she had a backpack on. And so Judy is really famous in Taiwan, all right? And right now, her father is, uh, is, is starting a hunger strike to uh, make a statement for democracy, and Judy thinking that her father is older and is approaching death and that a hunger strike might bring it on quicker, wrote him a letter of testimony calling him to repent and believe in Jesus. And so this past week, that letter was reproduced in Taiwanese newspapers. Her father released it to the press. It's very interesting that the one part of the letter that was left out was where she put in John 3, 15 and 16. And that was the one part of the letter they canned. Now, do you want to know what the newspapers canned from the letter? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, can you think of two better sentences to can from the letter? You know, it seems like they were pretty intentional about what they took out, right? So as you think of Judy and her husband Joel and their children and her dad right now, pray for them. Pray that the letter will produce fruit not just in her father's life, that he may come to faith, but also in the lives of, uh, of all of Taiwan. And pray for Joel as he leads this strong woman. Have pity on him. And you women that are strong, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And it's hard. So anyhow, that's, that's a little vignette about Judy. That's who Stephen was praying for. That's what's going on in their lives right now. And they're a wonderful couple. I hope they'll be able to visit us sometime. So let's go ahead and pray right now for, for, for Joel and Judy. Father, we thank you for Judy and for the wonderful witness that she had here in IU. We thank you for Joel and that you joined them in marriage. We thank you that they are committed to being whites in Taiwan. We thank you for the influence that you've given Judy through the fame of her and her father. We pray now for her dad that he might be soft and tender-hearted towards this appeal from his daughter, that he will not go to his grave proud and unrepentant, but that he might bow before the Son of God, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray for Judy and for Joel that you will give them much fruit of their ministry, that they will be faithful to this ministry, and that you will protect them from discouragement, and that you will provide all the support they need. We pray for Judy as she submits to her husband, that you will uh, give her grace in doing this, and that Joel will be able to know how best to be the head of his home. And Father, we pray that for all of us. Help us in our weakness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's very interesting this morning that uh, the top of the Google News page is what? When I got up this morning, what was the top? The top of the Google News page was Google News telling us that an unprecedented thing has happened. And what is the unprecedented thing? The unprecedented thing, a nice picture that accompanies it, is that the Roman Catholic Church has declared that a particular individual is a saint. Now, you know what saint means, right? Saint means they're sanctified. In other words, that they're saved. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church is proclaiming to the world, with a million people in attendance, that a particular person is regenerate, Or Jesus said is what? Born again by the Holy Spirit. I mean, for them to declare that someone's a saint can have no meaning outside of them saying that person is born again, right? How can you be sanctified? How can you see the kingdom of God if you're not born again, right? And yet, what is the one thing that Jesus said? Jesus said to the religious leaders of his time, to Nicodemus, who came to him at night, what did he say to him? 
Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You remember that. And Nicodemus had, you know, a, a, a natural response. He said, well, you know, how, how can a man be born again when, look at how old I am, you know, I'm not in my mother's womb. And Jesus said, you're a religious teacher and you don't know these things. Flesh gives birth to flesh, you remember this, spirit gives birth to spirit, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he can't inherit the kingdom of God. And then he describes the process of being born again in the agency of the Holy Spirit. You remember that. He says, the wind blows where it listeth, the wind blows where it wants, and you don't know where it's come from, and you don't know where it's going to. That's why you... You know, you wet your fingers and put them up because you can't see it, and hopefully your fingers are going to indicate the direction of the wind, right? And Jesus says that's what it's like to be born again, and that's what the work of the Holy Spirit is like. In other words, this is a secret thing that belongs to God. Now, let's come back to the top of the Google page today. The top of the Google page today says an unprecedented thing has happened, which is that the Roman Catholic Church has declared to the world with a million people in attendance that a particular individual has been sanctified, is a saint, in other words, is born again by the Spirit of God. God. Now, how do they know that? Well, they have an investigation process. It's very rigorous. It used to be, I think, that you had to have two miracles, but I think one sufficed for either John the 23rd or the other guy. And so Jesus says, the wind blows where it lists. If you don't know where it's come from, you don't know where it's going to. The Roman Catholic Church says, we have investigated and we have appointed devil's advocates. You know that's where the word comes from. Devil's advocates are the ones who are appointed by the Vatican to argue against the beatification of individuals, the sainthood. So when they're proposed, they then appoint prosecuting attorneys who are called, in, in, in parlance, they're called devil's advocates. In other words, advocates for the devil that this man isn't sanctified. Now, what do you think the chances were that John the 23rd would not be sanctified? It would be a bit awkward for the man that called together an ecumenical council, if you know anything about the Roman Catholic Church. In other words, an ecumenical council is a council that cannot err because it's ecumenical. And so Vatican II did not err. And John Twenty-Third called it together. What do you think the chances are that they would say that he in fact failed, the devil's advocates won, and they were mistaken, and he's not beatified. He's not canonized. He's not a saint. Now, here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is, remember how I said that Google announced that something unprecedented had happened? Remember that? And then I equivocated, which means I lied to you. Because what I said was that the amazing thing was that the Roman Catholic Church claimed to know the mind of God. 
It claimed to be able to see the wind, where it came from, and where it claimed to be able to definitively declare that these men are saints. Did you hear what we said to the three men baptized this morning? Did you hear woven through all the words the constant exhortation, what? To be faithful to the end. Was there any presumption that these men would die faithful to Jesus? There was no presumption. We exhorted them and we prayed for God to give them the grace of perseverance. And when they die, do you think that I, if I'm alive, which I probably won't be, and they probably won't be in Bloomington when they die, but do you think if they died that I would get up and say that God has revealed to the elders of this church the sure and certain knowledge that these men are saints. And if I did that, what would you think of me? You all complain to me all the time about funerals you go to. I heard it again in the last two weeks. I don't remember who it was, somebody here. They were telling me they went to a funeral, and again, the funeral, um, what, what do they say, lied about your relative. Because they, they I'm, I'm sorry, I should be careful when I do this because I don't remember who it was. But they said to me that the, the, that the relatives of the family looked at each other, and if I remember correctly, it was actually, yeah, I, I, it's coming back. And that the brothers and sisters looked at each other and said, did, did, they even, did the priest even know my dad? Did, did he even know my dad? Because the man he was talking about was not the man they knew. Now, who knew him better, the priest or the sons? Absolutely the sons. What does it do to the world to have men dressed up in robes? With a million people in attendance reported at the top of every news media outlet in the world. The two of the past three popes certainly were saved, certainly were born again, certainly are saints. What does it do to the world? Huh? Is that any threat to the souls of the world? to have this charade going on in public. You remember I told you that I was equivocating or lying about it because I said that the unprecedented thing was that they declared that they knew the work of the Holy Spirit in these two men's lives. But that wasn't the unprecedented thing. Do you know what the unprecedented thing was? Two. The unprecedented thing was that they were on this day declaring that two men were saints. In other words, it wasn't unprecedented that they claimed to know the work of the Holy Spirit and who is and isn't born again. What was unprecedented is that they had the audacity of hope. But in this case, it wasn't hope, it was certainty. Ah, they'll say, well, no. David afterwards will come up to me and say, well, Tim, if you understand Roman Catholic dogma. Actually, it's not that they are declaring that they know for certain. It's just that the whole world thinks that they're declaring they know for certain. 
<laughs> and that's always the case with the Roman Catholic Church. They're always telling you that actually what all the common people believe is not precisely what their doctrinal position is, but they never bother to correct all the common people. Right? Now, remember I say, what is the danger of this being on all the news outlets, right? I'm trying to get you to think of the repercussions in the souls of individuals alive today as they watch this. Now, you know that the Roman Catholic Church claims that it's the only true church. They'll make allowances for some of us getting in. But it's, it's, it's almost like a miscarriage, you know, like a baby born out of time, like by the skin of your teeth, you know. It's, it's, it's an anomaly that God sometimes does. But you know they say they're the true church, right? Now, jump back... 2,000 years, and put yourself in the true church at the time of Christ. Who was it? It was the Jews. And then say, who was the Vatican at the time of Christ? It was the Sanhedrin, right? The The College of Cardinals. It was the high priest. It was the Sanhedrin, and it was the scribes. You know, the scribes are Ratzinger back when he was the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in charge of shutting down heresy. Remember that? And what was the relationship between Jesus and the Pope of his time? What was the relationship between Jesus and the high priests and the Sanhedrin? Okay? Okay, And if we read the news today where we see that they're announcing to the world with a million people in attendance that both the most liberal pope of the last 50 years and the most conservative are both sanctified. You know, John XXIII is a hero of all the liberals. And so Pope Francis has, has, has burned the candle at both ends, and that's the report. You know, he's announcing ollie ollie in free to both liberals and conservatives. That's the unity of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, if we watch this going on and then we come to any of the gospel accounts about Jesus and his relationship with the Vatican and with the popes and with the cardinals of his time, are we going to have any clue how to understand it? They're telling us who's saved. And who's saved? It's always the people wearing the robes who are saved. Right? And the people who honor the people wearing the robes. Right? God's work always goes in perfect harmony with respectability, class, and wealth. Right? I mean, what's the point of having religion if it doesn't go in harmony with social class and status and wealth? As a matter of fact, you could say that the whole purpose of those of you who are scumbags is to remind those of us who are respectable that God is always working in harmony with social class and status and wealth. Why would you have druggies 
if they don't reassure the respectable people. That's the whole point of having druggies. I mean, the whole point of being, having alcoholics is so that we can feel superior. <laughs> right? You know, the whole point of having a prodigal son is so that the older brother can pride himself on the fact that he's never swapped any pigs. And so you look at the top of Google today and you see this man with the wealth of a billion people pouring out upon him on the Sistine Chapel. We make pilgrimages over there to see them. You know, Michelangelo. And don't you ever forget it, that the Vatican and the Pope and the Cardinals and every priest, and every pastor, and every presbytery, and every seminary, and every church, and every board of elders will teach you absolutely that God's plan runs in perfect harmony with what? Respectability, social class, wealth status. And the top of Google News today does an unbelievable job of reinforcing that, doesn't it? Did you see the picture? I wish I had it, but we don't believe in images in worship. Contrary to the Roman Catholic Church. The pictures are awe-inspiring. It's taken from outside of the plaza. And so in the foreground are the million people. And then the unbelievable tipped-up concrete of the Vatican. That's what this is. This is tipped-up concrete with chemical. Uh, what do you call these? Uh, drums cut in half. Somebody asked me recently, are there chemical drums cut in half? And I was like, yeah, yeah. I was in Wheaton, and these things are strange to Wheaton. I had great delight in saying, yes, they're chemical drums cut in half. Well, why? Well, because you won't give us your money. <laughs> okay. All right. Down, boy, down. And so you have this picture and it's unbelievably impressive according to everything that the world thinks is impressive. And the occasion is men with long flowing gowns declaring to us the work of the Holy Spirit. And they know it infallibly, although not quite infallibly. And that's the image that everybody has of the Christian faith today. Okay? You all with me? Now let's read our scripture. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. 
Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. How's that for a starter? You with me? You feel the tension, right? Now all the cardinals and all the bishops and all the priests and all the Presbyterian ministers were coming near to listen to him. But that's not what it says. It says all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. But it would be more like, this man, you know, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he, this is Jesus, told them this parable, saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which is lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you see, this could not be more contrary to the top of Google's page today. You with me? Can it really be true that at the time of our Lord, things were so wicked that it was precisely the Vatican, the cardinals, and the Presbyterian ministers that hated him and grumbled that he welcomed sinners, and that today, somehow, everything's worked out really neat. That today, the people in church are all welcoming of sinners and never grumble about sinners at all. It's amazing to me how we always look at the past and assume that we're superior to everybody that lived before us. It's central to to postmodernism and modernism that we look down our noses at everybody that lived before. I was listening yesterday to, you know, in the playoffs to uh, Shaq and the other dudes, Charles and Sir Charles and And they were going on and on about how wicked the racist owner was. And, you know, I mean, yeah, he's two-faced and, yeah, it's disgusting, right? But I was sitting there listening with Christian ears. And I realized in another five years they'll be saying the same thing about me because of homosexuality. And what they were saying is, you know, we've evolved, This is all about the younger generation. They need to, you know, cast off the dead weight from past generations and live in an enlightened way, you know. And this guy should be suspended. His team should be taken away from him. And I can agree. 
and at the very same time know absolutely that the noose is around my neck and it's tightening. Because I don't accept that race and sodomy are the same category. You with me? And so here's what's happening to us is we're always doing what Sir Charles said last night, which is we're looking at the past and we're saying we need to be done with the stupid, fuddy-duddy, ignorant, uneducated, unevolved. And don't you think that's exactly how you look at the Pharisees and the scribes? You think, oh my, if I had been alive at that time, I would never have been grumbling Right? And then we look at Rome and they beatify these or, or sanctify or sainthood or whatever it is they're doing. And we think, well, you know, for all we know, they're Christians and what harm is there? Well, the harm is you come to this text in Scripture after looking at the top of Google's news page and it's such a radical readjustment that the earth is shaking does not compute. One of these two things does not compute. Either Rome is completely mercantile and evil in what it's saying to the world, or we have evolved and no longer commit the sins that Scripture warns us against constantly. One of those two things is true. But you know, we don't want to say negative things about any other religion. We had a woman here not so long ago who I said something negative about the Roman Catholic Church and she told me afterwards that contrary to me, her priest never said anything critical of any faith tradition. And that's a direct quote. And so, the Roman Catholic Church does its thing and you, because you don't want to involve yourself in anything like exposing the evil deeds of darkness, keep your mouth shut, and the whole world's talking about it. And sometimes you have a wacko woman like Doris Weeks, and she opens her mouth, and you think, well, that's Doris. Don't worry, normally they think that about me. And I bless you for it. And then there's the Sparks. They grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, or which was it, Dan or Cindy? Dan. Is it you? Okay. And we have a few people that grew up in the Roman Catholic Church and take this stuff seriously and think something is at stake, but those of us that are Presbyterian from way back have evolved. And we really don't think that there's any harm in the Roman Catholic Church dispensing salvation and then we go back and we read this, and what we find is that the church of Christ's time was an inveterate, an unending, an irrefragable, an absolutely never-stopping opponent of Jesus Christ. And they killed him. And all of a sudden, respectable Social class, wealth, religion doesn't look so benign, does it? Huh? Huh?
all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Notice all of them, not just a few that the work of God was evident in, all of them, they attended him, were coming, present participle, it was their habit, it went on and on, near, near. They weren't at the back, you know, it was like the welder in Partyville. I asked him to church and he said, if I came in that church, the walls would fall in. (laughs) But they were near him. And who was it that was at the back? The respectable grumblers. Jesus had the sinners close and the respectable grumblers were in the back. And why were they there? They weren't there to party, they were there to what? To listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. In other words, all the religious leaders were grumbling. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And you know, it's one thing for you to be out in public and, 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 and you know, talk with that weird woman at the counter at Walmart, you know. But it's something else entirely to invite her home to eat with you, isn't it? So he told them this parable, what man among you? In other words, there is not one man among you who would not do this with his animals. You see, that's the emphasis. What man among you wouldn't, right? Jesus is saying every single one of you, if it was sheep, and you had one sheep who left the flock, left the fold, and he went out, every single one of you would go out to seek that sheep out, right? And when he found it, what would he do? Well, here's what it says. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And we see that this is Jesus talking about his relationship with sinners. All right? And he says he would go out, number one. And number two, when he found the lost sheep, he doesn't say that he would drive it into the church. He doesn't say that he'd sick a sheepdog on it. What he says is that he will lay you on his shoulders and he'll carry you. That has to be the most beautiful part. It's beautiful to think of heaven rejoicing. But I love that part about him coming back with us on his shoulders rejoicing. (laughs) Now you'll notice that I just began to speak as if all of us here are that sheep. And do you see what I'm doing? I'm back and forth, you know. On the one hand, you can't be comfortable here. This is religion. Religion always opposes Jesus, but then I'm saying, but every single one of us, he didn't sick a sheepdog on us to bite our rear end until we came back to church. What he did was he found us and he put us on his shoulders and he carried us and as he went, he went rejoicing. And the truth is in here are Pharisees and scribes and in here are lost sheep who have returned. And the point of parables is to leave you asking, which am I? 
right? That's the point of a parable. A parable always leaves you enough rope that you can hang yourself with, right? That's the point of parables, having eyes you will not see. Now, there's, there's an awful lot more I should have done this morning, but I want to do one more thing before we stop, and that is I want to go into the description of, um, of uh, what Jesus says. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then listen to what he says. So Jesus is saying he's not just going to be content rejoicing himself. He's going to call a bunch of people together for a party. Right? You see that, right? And then he says this. He says, I tell you. So this is Jesus not telling the parable, but rather um, explaining it. All right? And he says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And we love to quote that, don't we? And it gives us such joy to think when we see somebody repent. Like, I mean, come on. When we see these men baptized this morning, I cannot tell you all the people that I know who are rejoicing and why. In other words, the, 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 the investment and the fruit and the work of the Holy Spirit in so many of your lives through these men as you have watched them come to faith, is awesome. And I get to hear more than most of you do because generally you hear more when you work in the office than when you don't. Okay? And so we love the fact, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner repents. And it's wonderful to think of the joy in heaven this morning over these three men. I mean, you look at the joy in our houses over these three men, right? A, A, some of you know what I'm talking about. The joy in Bob's house, the joy in my house. All right, but it goes on and it says this. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner repents than what? Than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, let me ask you this question. Who are the 99 persons who don't need to repent? Are you one of them? It's kind of a dangerous question, isn't it? But Jesus says there are 99 that don't need to repent. There are 99 who are back in the church and have not been excommunicated, right? There are 99 older brothers sitting there just waiting for their younger brother to come back. So what's Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying that the 99 really don't need to repent? In other words, is the application of this that all of us who are in the church are rejoicing over every sinner who repents? Or is the application that since there really is no such thing as a person who's righteous who doesn't need to repent, that all of us who are in the church should leave the church and sin badly? so that we can come back to the church and have joy. You see how Jesus puts us in a pressure cooker. And he makes us think 
am I one of the 99 that doesn't need to repent? Is that who I am? Listen. If there is one reason to exist of this church, it is to have one church for sure. Maybe others also, but one church for sure where the sinner can enter and have joy. And the only way that this church can be a place where sinners can have joy greet them is if there is not any righteous person here who doesn't need to repent. Do you you understand what I'm saying? The minute this becomes a church of righteous people who don't need to repent, no sinner can ever be received with joy. So what's the danger that this church will become a church of righteous people who don't need to repent? What is, is that a real danger? Is, is there any danger that this church will be a church of people who don't need to repent? Remember Martin Luther's first thesis was, when our Lord said, you must repent, he was teaching us that the life of pagans, the life of lost sheep, that's not what he said. He was teaching us that the life of Christians is a life of repentance. Jesus said, When the Jews were pointing at a group and saying they died because of their sin, Jesus said twice in one chapter, he said, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And do you know that um, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he said to the Jews, the promise is to you and to your children and to Remember, I read it earlier. All those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now, what that means is to Gentiles, as well as Jews, because the Gentiles are the ones that are far off. And he commands them to repent and to be baptized. What this means is that there's nobody, not Jews and not Gentiles, who, must, who, who doesn't need to repent. Because he's preaching to Jews in Jerusalem and he says, repent. And if you go into the Areopagus, it means that even, even PhDs have to repent. Because it's the most sophisticated system of learning and philosophy and everything you could ever have. And when Peter, or Paul, preached to the Areopagus, the leading men of Athens, he said, In the past, God has overlooked such ignorance, and now he is commanding that all people everywhere must repent. There's not a chance that there's any person who has ever lived who can escape repentance. And not just once, but a lifetime of repentance, because the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. You see, the real issue was that these Pharisees 
were teaching people that if they jiggered their money and their donations and their Corbin and their, their running the system, they would make sure that the acts of the Holy Spirit conform to the acts here on earth, especially if those acts ended up giving them money. And it's always this way with false religion. False religion always tells you that if you give them your money, then you're saved. And certainly the man that runs the system is a saint. Because after all, how could he be a sinner when he's selling salvation to everybody? And so here these Pharisees were. They had set up a system whereby respectability ran in perfect harmony with being born again. And when the sinners came in and were the ones closest to Jesus, they could not handle it because it busted up their system of of selling salvation by proximity with them, with their rules, with everything they'd set up. And so they grumbled, they hated it. They hated it. And so they killed Jesus. That's it. And so, why do you think sinners love Jesus? You know why sinners love Jesus? They love Jesus because Jesus never stopped calling men to repent. And sinners know they need to repent. (laughs) Right? Right? Religious people think they don't need to repent. Sinners know they need to repent. And so sinners love Jesus because he looked them straight in the face and he said, repent. And if a man commands you to repent, it must be possible to repent, right? And you say, well, no, without the work of the Holy Spirit, you can't repent. I say, listen, if you come to him, he will not cast you out. If you repent, he will receive you but I can't repent because I don't have the Holy Spirit. And I say, you're a religious person, aren't you? Okay, are you all with me? Let me end by reading to you J. Gresham Machen. What is the great need in the church today? What's the great need in the church today? Don't we need the church to once again be a place where sinners can come close? Don't we need to stop trying to evangelize evangelicals? Isn't it a hopeless work? I mean, honestly. Have you ever tried to evangelize a good evangelical? Some of you who want to street preach, go to Wheaton. And see how long you last. Now, go to Gunderson Drive. You know, that's where a number of things, including Christianity Today, have their home. If you really want to get depressed, preach to the scribes and Pharisees. Right? A hundred years ago, Machen wrote this book called Christianity and Liberalism, and I've renamed it Christianity and Evangelicalism. The consciousness of sin was formerly the starting point of all preaching, but today it is gone. It used to be that all preaching started with consciousness of sin, but today it is gone. He said that a hundred years ago. What has become of the consciousness of sin? The consciousness of sin has certainly been lost, but what has removed it from the hearts of men? I'm skipping. Christianity begins with the consciousness of sin. (laughs) Put up your hand. 
I mean, honestly. Christianity begins with the consciousness of sin. Without the consciousness of sin, the whole of the gospel seems to be an idle tale. And that's what the world thinks of Christianity today. It just thinks, you know, it's a fairy tale. And it doesn't even hate it. Because there's nothing to hate. Because there's no consciousness of sin. And then he writes, The more one observes the condition of the church, the more one feels obliged to confess that the conviction of sin is a great mystery which can be produced only by the Spirit of God. Proclamation of the law in word and in deed can prepare for the experience, but the experience itself comes from God. When a man has that experience, when a man comes under the conviction of sin, his whole attitude towards life is transformed. He wonders at his former blindness. And the message of the gospel, which formerly seemed to be an idle tale, becomes now instinct with light. But it is God alone who can produce the change. And now this is the final paragraph of chapter 3 of this book. Listen carefully to the final paragraph. So Machen says, only let us not try to do without the Spirit of God. Only let's not try to go it without the Holy Spirit. Let's not try to do without the Spirit of God. The fundamental fault of the modern church is that she's busily engaged in an absolutely impossible task. She is busily engaged in calling the righteous to repentance. Come on. Think of all your invitations of people to come to church. And an awful lot of them amount to inviting the righteous to repent. I ain't going to do it. But when have you ever invited a Walmart woman to church? When have you had dinner with her? fundamental fault of the modern church is that she's busily engaged in an absolutely impossible task. She's busily engaged in calling the righteous to repentance. Modern preachers are trying to bring men into the church without requiring them to give up their pride. They are trying to help men avoid the conviction of sin. The preacher gets up into the pulpit, opens the Bible, and addresses the congregation somewhat as follows, quote, you people are very good. You respond to every appeal that looks toward the welfare of Bloomington. Now, we have in the Bible, especially in the life of Jesus, something so good that we believe it's good even enough good enough for you good people? And Machen says, this is modern preaching, but it's entirely futile. It's 
It's hopeless, it's worthless, it's ineffective, it's impotent. It's entirely futile. And then this final sentence, he says, even our Lord did not call the righteous to repentance. And probably we shall be no more successful than he. You know, who do we want here in the body of Christ worshiping with us and praying with us and preaching to us and hearing our confessions of sin? Who do we want here? Really, who do we want? Do we want God to bring in the leaders, the movers and shakers, the members of the golf club, the investment counselors? Or do we want sinners? Who do we want? Who have you had to dinner this last week? Last night, we didn't have any sinners. We had David and Vanessa Abasara. Some of their children are sinners. But not David and Vanessa. We had Michael and Ben, and their children are perfect too. And then we had Heather and Doug. And then we had Lucas and Hannah and their children. Their children are perfect too. Now these people I'm mentioning whose children are perfect are my grandchildren. All right. And so that's who we had. And we did real well, didn't we? It just so happens if you're related to Tim Bailey, you're a saint. I mean, do you understand this, how sinister, how sneaky this is? We must love the sinners. They are where God is working. Do you hear me? Give up the respectable people. God has never had his kingdom go with class. Do you understand that? Okay? All right, I'm way over time. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you had mercy on the notorious sinner, Paul. And that you kept him with his thorn in the flesh so that it may be clear that In his weakness, you were made strong. Father, I thank you that you have had mercy on me and that you are pleased to use a notorious sinner to preach your gospel. We thank you, Father, that there are many sinners here who are repenting and who love other sinners. And we pray that you will make us faithful and not trying to use religion for social class and respectability, but that we will love sinners as our Lord loves sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.